Welcome to the ultimate crowdsourced personal finance show. This is your Friday Roundup. You're listening to Choose FI Radio. The blueprint for financial independence lives here. If you're looking to unlock the secrets to financial independence and early retirement, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and join a community of like-minded people who are getting off the hamster wheel and taking control of their lives in the pursuit of financial independence. Choose FI, your home for financial independence online. everyone super excited about this drawdown case study uh we did not announce this to you on monday because to be honest with you we didn't know if we'd be able to turn it around fast enough but one of our most request guests is big earn from early retirement now and i think the reason for that is well justified in that big earn has probably written one of the most thorough i would say the ultimate guide i I try not to use that too lightly but the ultimate guide to sequence of return and drawdown strategy Uh, really looking at it from probably the most comprehensive angle imaginable. I think our thought was, as we're starting to increasingly get case studies of people that are approaching drawdown to be able to apply his framework to it to basically say, does this work with different variables? So yeah, to help me with this, I have my co-host Brad here with me today. How you doing, buddy? Hey, Jonathan, I'm doing quite well. Agreed. This episode 152 with Becky Heptig, and she talked about her financial life with her and her husband, Stephen. What's interesting is they are at this point where drawdowns are realistic for them. Becky talked about this in the podcast on Monday. When it comes time to actually take that money out, withdrawing money, being like stabbing herself in the heart, (laughs) Jonathan, stabbing herself in the heart. But I think a lot of that just comes from a lack of being comfortable with it. And I think what's beautiful about what Big Earn, who's also known as Karsten, does is provide this level of understanding. Carson, I'm so curious and so interested and excited for you to help us walk through this amazing case study of Becky and Steven. Thanks for having me on. Thank so let's talk about some some practicalities here in that, and, and this is one of the brilliant pieces that you made when you were starting to write the Safe Withdrawal Rate series was that accumulation is relatively easy. There may be some nuances and people may have some different ways that they approach it, but really simplicity is your best friend when it comes to accruing wealth. The counterpoint being uh, drawdown uh, is not. Drawdown is very nuanced, and there's a lot of factors that you need to think about when coming up with a realistic drawdown strategy. Yeah, that's right. When you accumulate assets, we have all of these rules of thumbs like automate your savings and don't think too hard about stock market volatility. And uh, I can tell you that once you're in the in the phase where you withdraw money from your portfolio, you definitely are a lot more worried about stock market volatility and you are uh, a lot more worried about digging into your principal. And it's uh, a lot of retirees have this fear of touching their principal. And uh, uh, part of it is justified, but there's also part of it that's unjustified, right? Because uh, unless you have a constraint that you have to maintain your capital because you want to leave a big bequest 
it's okay to draw down your capital at a measured pace and, and slowly. And uh, so don't deprive yourself, right? Don't don't have the scarcity mindset. Uh, and you should do your withdrawals confidently because that's what your retirement should be about, right? It should be fun. It should be confident. It should be comfortable. Uh, don't have this scarcity mindset where you live like misers in retirement because you're afraid to touch your principal. So let's talk about, I think, one of the big things that when you're talking about drawdown, you have to consider, and that is sequence of return risk. And this is an idea that really was introduced to me by you. And it's one that I think for our audience is important to keep in mind. And at the heart of it is that at the point of retirement, the first five years really matter. Right. Again, there's, that's a rule of thumb. It, it could also be longer, right? Because there are some instances where uh, so the people that retired in the mid-60s to late-60s, they had very poor returns until basically 1982, and that's when the recovery started again. So it, five years is probably a good estimate, but there were some instances where the drawdown period was even a lot longer. And um, what sank you in the mid-60s was not just the first five years, it's, it's actually the first 15 to 17 or 18 years, actually. And that's one of the things that makes this interesting is when you're a mathematician or a statistician (laughs) and you're trying to figure out, well, what number would work? Well, then you're confronted with all these time variables. So what worked on this decade period would not have worked Mm -hmm. over here. And what worked over, you know, back in for the last decade may not work for this decade. So you're trying to have one number, one drawdown number to rule them all. In reality, that doesn't really reflect life because there are other variables at place, which is why I think taking kind of the framework and the variables that you know are these big multipliers, the ones that cause the the biggest change in the outcome, taking that and applying it to an actual case study is very valuable for the community. Right. Very good. So let's take a look at Becky. If we just this past week talked to Becky and her husband and basically started out with virtually no net worth at the age of 50 and then through incredible savings and intensity over the following subsequent, you know, 13 plus years, they reached a point where they're ready to retire. And now this in fact is the first year that they are actually going to be drawing down Brad's analogy of feeling like you're stabbing yourself in your heart. We connected you to with Becky just to basically take a look at her numbers. You're going to do, you're doing a post that's live the same day as this, where people can actually follow through it. And I hope they will actually go check that out. But I'm curious, you know, as you talked with Becky to find out where she was at, what were the questions that you were asking and what's your assessment? Well, I mean, you basically want to take stock of what do you have, what are your assets and liabilities, what are your spending constraints, and then what you will notice when you look at some real-world examples, right? Not the not the academic exercises, not the numerical examples like the Trinity study or the 4% rule calculations. As a life is a lot more complicated than that, right? So a lot of times your retirement is basically a, a multi-phase withdrawal strategy, right? And uh, it is there are multiple phases. So right now they're in the early 60s. They plan to take Social Security as late as possible. So they're going to wait until Stephen is 70 and Becky is 69 in order to maximize the, the Social Security benefits. So they have a very large 
cash flow demand right now, but then once Social Security kicks in, then they can reduce their withdrawals and then rely mostly on Social Security. So, and Becky and Stephen have this advantage that uh, that a lot of us in the early retirement community, for example, don't have, right? So, for us, Social Security is almost like an afterthought, right? We have to fund pretty much all of our retirement from our savings. And then, yeah, towards the end, we get a little bit of supplemental income from Social Security, uh, for them, it's almost the other way around. They have to bridge their cash flow needs for roughly the first six years until Social Security kicks in. And then they have uh, much lower withdrawals until basically the end of their life. Well, uh, okay, so there was another constraint that, well, what happens if late in life you have a health episode and you have to move into an assistant living facility or a nursing home? That would be the final phase of the withdrawal strategy. So that means that the withdrawals are not flat over time. So you can't just say, well, I have a 30 or 35 or 40 year retirement horizon. I look at what is my safe withdrawal rate. I look it up in some table in some academic paper or, or in the Trinity study. So that's just not going to work in the real world. You have to look at your actual real numbers. What are your assets? What are your liabilities? What are the cash flows over time? There's also a bit of a tax planning element in this. So for example, Becky and her husband uh, want to do the Roth conversions over time during the first uh, few years before Social Security kicks in. There are just so many different bells and whistles that this is not really something that you can just study from the Trinity study, right? This is something that you have to do on a case-by-case basis. All right, Carson. So let's slow down a little bit here. We're going to actually run through their case study. This is a dual-phase retirement in essence that I guess Becky right now is 63, Stephen's 64. They have to right. get to when Stephen is 70. And it sounds right. like they're going to get a significant amount of Social Security. And I, I'd love for you to talk us through, first, what you expect them to get through Social Security and what that looks like 70 and beyond. And then let's kind of bridge into that first six or seven year period. Right. So in about six years, Stephen is going to get $3,500 per month in Social Security. So that, that's close to the absolute maximum you can get. So the, the good news is so he, he has had 35 years of very high earnings at the maximum or close to the, to the Social Security maximum that gets taxed every year. And then Becky had slightly lower income. So she would actually do best if she takes the spousal benefit. That's a huge benefit, by the way, for married couples that if one spouse has lower social security income, uh, you can opt to take either your own income or half of your spouse's income, uh, social security benefit. So she would get around $1,600 because her, her husband would have gotten around $3,200 if he had retired at age 69, so six years from now. So she gets $1,600, the husband gets $3,500, so that's $5,100 or, or $61,000 per year once Social Security kicks in. And their budget is around $80,000 a year. Uh, and actually, after I went back and forth with her a few times, she asked me, well, can we raise it to about $90,000 a year? So if your budget is $80,000 a year, it means that you have to fund only the gap between your $61,000 in Social Security income uh, and your $80,000 budget once Social Security kicks in. So there's this two-phase problem where in the beginning you have very high withdrawals and then luckily they'll be much lower once your benefits kick in. 
Now, this is very interesting because we kind of started off by talking about sequence of return risk and the first five years really matter. Like the first five years is when they really need the money the most. And, you know, they're starting out with a just over a million dollar portfolio and they've got this budget that at the age of 70, so roughly in about six years, the vast majority, well over 50% of their needs are going to be covered by the social security that they've delayed on. But in the intervening five years, they need this money now. So I know they said that they were really inspired by Fritz from Retirement Manifesto and his bucket strategy, and we're using a piece of that. I'm just curious, as you take this kind of dual phase strategy that you're talking about, and you think about it in terms of one, a glide path, and two, in terms of some sort of bucket strategy system where, you know, the volatility, you know, we're at or near the top of the market and we don't know what's coming next year. Like, how does someone with that, that kind of mentality, what's the plan for making this as smooth of an experience as possible? Going into retirement with confidence. Right. So my recommendation to them is that they should not be afraid of drawing down their portfolio slightly over the first six years, right? Because even if they draw down their portfolio, as right now, it's I think it's about $1.35 million, and they draw it down by half over the first six years, or maybe even all the way down to $500,000, that would still look like a viable plan because once Social Security kicks in and you need only, say, $20,000 in withdrawals and you have a $500,000 portfolio, uh, you can actually still make it, especially, uh, say, we're going to have a bad recession and a bad bear market over the next six years and you end up with only, quote unquote, $500,000 once Social Security kicks in. At that point, you start withdrawing $20,000 from a $500,000 portfolio, that would be a 4% withdrawal rate, but it would be a 4% withdrawal rate at the bottom of the recession, at the bottom of the bear market. So even at $500,000, that still looks like it's a viable portfolio. So we want to get away from this mindset that we can dig into the principle, right? That's why you built your portfolio to $1.3 million to spend the money at some point. So it's actually, you can afford to withdraw something like $80,000, plus you have to pay a little bit of taxes because you want to do the Roth conversions along the way, so that creates a, a bit of taxable income. Uh, so let's round that up. Let's, let's, let's assume that your withdrawals are $90,000 a year. So now you're withdrawing somewhere close to 6.7% every year, and we're so so far into the bull market at another all-time high right now. So it sounds really scary to withdraw almost 7% from your portfolio. Uh, but again, it's only for a very short period of time. And even if you draw down your portfolio, you will still make it in the end because then Social Security kicks in and then you're almost home free. Kirsten, I have a question about the taxation, actually. So assuming right. that they plan to live on around $80,000, and let's even put the Roth conversions aside for a second. Right. Do we have a sense of what their federal and state tax liability is? I guess, put another way, is the $80,000 that they plan to live on, is some component of that taxation? Or do we have to gross up for right. what their actual withdrawal is? So we should gross that up. So we should consider, in order for me to get $80,000 net consumption every year, I would have to withdraw a little bit more because I have to pay taxes for that. And so they will obviously max out their standard deduction. 
which is somewhere around uh, $24,800. And I think it goes up once the spouses go above age 65, you add another $1,350 a year. So you could assume that that your standard deduction is almost $30,000. So that is completely tax-free. And then after that, uh, the nice thing is everything you make above that, ordinary income is initially taxed at 10% federal, and then you get into the second tax bracket at 12% federal. Colorado, I think, is a 4.63% flat tax rate, but there's some exemption also for retirement income, and they have to confirm that with their tax account. But I don't think that Colorado taxes Social Security benefits. So that's that's good news uh, once Social Security kicks in. Yeah, so you will probably have to pay initially for the first six years while you do the Roth conversions, you're going to have to budget probably nine, ten thousand dollars a year to pay for taxes because you you try to max out your Roth conversions every year in order to roll off that uh, relatively large pile that they have in a traditional IRA. Now the good news for Becky and Steven is that they actually do have the majority of their assets are already in a taxable account, uh, and then they have a little bit of a Roth and a health savings account, and then they can basically use that health savings account as a quasi-Roth IRA. And I think they have around a little bit under $500,000 in a 401k. That's less than 50% of their portfolio. It's oftentimes, uh, with retirees, you see that they have the overwhelming majority of their assets in a 401k, and then they will get into required minimum distributions later. So the case of Becky and Steve was actually one of the quote-unquote easier cases where it's is relatively it's relatively straightforward to to roll that pile of money in the 401k slash traditional IRA over to a Roth, and they will never get into this issue that they'll that they'll have the required minimum distributions. Of course, it's it's a good problem to have, right? If you if you have such a humongous 401k uh, and required minimum uh, distributions kick in, it's a good problem to have. But again, I'd still avoid having to pay ordinary income taxes on all of that later when the portfolio has grown. So it's best to move it over to a Roth. So I did some calculations in a simple spreadsheet where I found it's, it's actually easy to completely convert the entire portfolio into a Roth. So all of the retirement accounts, they will be in either a Roth or the health savings accounts or quasi-Roth. And then they would have lived off of the taxable accounts in the beginning. So eventually, they will have essentially a 100% Roth IRA, and then they will live completely tax-free in the future, except for Social Security, which will be taxed on your federal return. But it's only 85% of your benefits from Social Security will be taxed on your federal return. So you will still have a few thousand dollars in tax liability on your federal return pretty much for the entire duration of your retirement, even once you complete the Roth conversions. Uh, and that's due to the Social Security benefits. But uh, uh, keep in mind, so the first almost $30,000 will be tax-free. And then the first, uh, I think, seventeen dollars or $18,000 is taxed at only at only 10%. So the tax liabilities later in retirement, they can probably keep a lid on them and, and they will be very minor. But uh, yeah, yeah, you are absolutely right. When you do your safe withdrawal analysis, you also want to factor in your, your taxes, absolutely. So from the sound of this, they have a significant amount of their net worth, you said well more than half, in taxable accounts. So right. for this six-year period where they need to draw down approximately $80,000 per year, you know, let's not even talk about inflation, but let's just say 80,000 per year. That can come out of their taxable accounts, which to everybody out there, that's just a fancy way of saying 
their savings, basically. This is money that's right. already been taxed. There's no taxable event as in when you're pulling out of a 401k and it's ordinary income. There might be capital gains on selling shares and such. So the taxation will be very minimal, basically, to get them to this point where they're getting Social Security six years from now. It sounds like the significant portion of the the heavy lifting is really done for them. Now, I'm curious, when you did your analysis, with the Roth IRA conversion, they can access that money penalty-free five years from when they actually undertake the conversion. Is that accurate? Uh, I think I have to double check with your accountant, but I think that five-year limit is for us early retirees because they are already past age 59 and a half. If they roll a traditional IRA into a Roth, it should be accessible right away. So so I think that that five-year window and the latter, that is something for the early retirees. That would be a constraint for early retirees, probably not for Becky and Stephen. Even then, because they have actually so much money in the taxable account that they can live off of, by the time they really have to access the Roth IRAs, that's going to be so deep into retirement that I think they they probably don't have to access their Roth IRAs until they're about 70 or uh, really late into their retirement because of Social Security. Gotcha. So when you're figuring out the amounts for them to convert through this Roth IRA conversion, are you are you basing it on their 80,000 or are you only basing it on they're really only going to need 20,000 a year? Like are you massaging the tax rates in essence? Uh, so okay, so they have 6 years to convert their traditional IRA. So the traditional IRA is right now about $490,000 and then how long it takes to convert that. So I mean first of all, every year what you want to do is you want to look at your tax brackets. Right. And you want to see how much of your taxable income have you already used up because there's this jump from a 12% marginal tax rate to a 22% marginal tax rate. So you don't want to convert so much of your traditional IRA in any one given year that it puts you into the 22% uh, tax bracket. The analysis that I did was that later in retirement, they will be pretty squarely in the 12% tax bracket, uh, federal. Of course, this is always subject to the constraints. Well, tax laws could change, right? But will the 2018 tax reform, will that stay uh, in the long term? There's actually the uh, some of the tax cuts are going to expire in, I think, 2025 or 2026. But uh, they'll always come up with some kind of last-minute compromise to make them permanent. That's my working assumption. But anyways, what I was trying to, to get to here is that in their particular case, it would seem optimal to do the Roth conversions so as to maximize their first two tax brackets on the federal return. So look at what is your ordinary income plus all of the other income, right? They, they have some income from interest and dividends that will all go onto your federal tax return. And if you add up your standard deduction, which is somewhere around uh, $25,000, plus the first two tax brackets, which is, I think, somewhere, it's a little bit over $75,000. So you can generate around $100,000 in total income, and that will still keep you in the 12% bracket. So, and then you basically look at probably every year in December, how much money have have you earned so far? And you, again, your brokerage account should give you the data. How much interest uh, income have you generated so far? How much dividend income have you generated? How much capital gains? And then you just look at 
what is the top of my 12% bracket? You subtract your income year to date, and uh, that's what you're going to convert. And that could be as high as $80,000 uh, a year or, or maybe a little bit more. It could be a little bit less depending on, on how their taxable income is that year. So you can definitely make a really nice dent in your traditional IRAs. And now I can't guarantee that they will convert all of the traditional IRAs by the time Social Security kicks in. Because remember, by the time Social Security kicks in, now you have this huge, well, relatively huge taxable income on your federal return, which is uh, $61,000 uh, Social Security, well, 85% of that, but that, that's still somewhere around $50,000. So now your space in your tax return brackets is a lot less for the Roth conversions, but cross your fingers, by that time, you should have already converted either everything or the overwhelming majority. And then you can really decide, Do you what do you want to do now? Do you want to keep doing the Roth conversions? If you still have enough money in your taxable account to fund your expenses, right? Remember, your, your withdrawals are now going to be much less because Social Security has kicked in. If you still have enough money in your taxable account, sure, use that to fund your expenses and then continue with your Roth conversions if you still have money in the traditional IRA even once Social Security has kicked in, but it will be very limited. It might be only ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars, no longer the eighty thousand dollars a year. Right. So for me, just to recap, and I feel like I got most of that, and it was really useful. So if you have close to a half million, like in this case, in this particular case study, we have close to a half million dollars in pre-tax buckets, and we're just now retired. So basically, we're controlling what our income is. Truly, we're controlling it because right. we can either draw down or not draw down. We have a we have room to roll over upwards of $80,000 a year from these pre-tax buckets into this Roth. And what we're doing when we're picking that number, how much we're rolling over, we're looking at the tax brackets and we're saying, we really don't want to be paying more than 12% in federal tax. So we will roll over as much as we can up to the upper ends of that 12% marginal tax bracket. And then when we start to roll into 22% marginal tax bracket, or 25, 22 or 25, that's getting a little too pricey for our taste and we'll just scale right. it back down and we'll stay in that range. We can do that for as long as we can control our income, which is up until we start claiming social security at the age of 70. Once we start claiming social security, now suddenly we're going right. to have $60,000 in income that's going to be showing up on our federal tax bracket. So now we lose the ability to crush it with those Roth conversions, but it's really nice if you can lock in a 12% marginal tax bracket because you chose that. Right. You chose that's right. the tax bracket I want to be at. Right. And then one other thing, if you go over by $300 and, <laughs> oh, you uh, and no. they go into the 22% bracket, don't beat yourself up, right? Because it's truly a marginal tax rate. So the 22% the is truly only on the amount that you're above that limit. Everything else is still at the 12% bracket. I mean, some people might say, hey, I, I would like to go a little bit over just to make sure that I don't leave any money on the table in the 12% in the bracket. So it's your personal preference how you want to make sure that you, you either make sure that you don't get into the 22% bracket or you make sure that you for sure max out that 12% bracket. Yeah, Carson, you stole my thunder. That was precisely what I was going to say. And, and we can't reiterate this enough. I think so many people get confused with how our taxation system works. And they're worried, oh, if I'm in the next tax bracket, it's as if all of my prior dollars are now taxed at right. that higher rate. So as you so eloquently said, if you're $300 over, that means those $300 are taxed at 22% in this arbitrary case instead of 12%. So we're talking Six literally 
$30 difference, that you, additional right. tax. So don't beat yourself up. Clearly, you want to get as many dollars in those 10 and 12% without going into 22, but you don't have to be spot on to the dollar. So I, I just wanted to ask one real quick question, since we did kind of gloss over this a little bit, but it's essential, and I, and I just don't know enough about it. The spousal benefits for Social Security. Mm -hmm. And now, obviously, I do not want to get into the political viability of Social Security. That's that's not what I'm what I'm getting at here at all. But just talk me through the viability of of how this spousal benefit works. Assuming you you have to assume one of them is going to predecease the other at some point, right? So we're right. talking about about getting this roughly fifty one hundred dollars a month. But what happens? if and when certainly one of them does predecease the other. So if Stephen is the survivor, then it's very simple. So he just keeps his benefits and Becky will lose her benefits because she passed away. Uh, now, if it's the other way around, so Becky is making only $1,600 uh, and Stephen $3,500. If uh, Stephen passes away, then Becky has the option, not the, of course, in, in her case, it is uh, it is a no-brainer. She has the option to take over Stephen's benefits. That's called the survivor benefit. That's a huge benefit to married couples. And uh, it's especially useful for couples where you have one very high earner and one very low earner. Because that means that basically Stephen can bequest his high social security benefits to his wife. There's a huge benefit that Becky can take over Stephen's benefits. So it's it's as if she had earned all of these social security benefits. And uh, so especially uh, w when you have a situation with two spouses where the one spouse is a lot younger and the younger spouse has a lower income. So you can extend the lifetime of the benefits of the high earner because the low earner and the younger person will take over these high benefits. So there's a huge benefit. So this is actually one of the reasons why you probably, as a married couple, uh, when you're in that situation where one spouse is younger and has a longer life expectancy and is also a lower earner, the higher earner definitely wants to wait as long as possible to claim benefits because you can bequest the social security earnings to your younger spouse. That's fantastic. Yeah. Thanks for breaking this down for us. And then I'm, I'm curious if we actually think about the people that are listening to this show and in particular leaning into this because they foresee a future, a near future in which this reflects that they have some significant amount of net worth. Social security is a reality. They're thinking about it dual phase and they're preparing for their first year of drawdown. I'd like to spend just some time talking, you know, Becky, again, going to this, I feel like I'm stabbing myself in the heart with this first, and I appreciate the fact that drawing down on principle is not the end of the world, but I just literally mean from a glide path perspective, from a bucket strategy perspective, from a, you know, buffering yourself against volatility perspective, what are the guardrails that you would put in place for this scenario in terms of mechanically from a, Hey, I need to have this checking account. I draw out all of next year, et cetera. What sort of framework would you think through with Becky and her scenario? I'm actually a little bit cautious on these bucket strategies. Of course, I mean, you, you have to have a checking account. You probably have a money market account where you have a little bit of a cash reserve. Uh, so my personal preference would be that in retirement, you do the exact same thing as what you did saving for retirement. You automate your savings 
right? You do regular contributions to your 401k and regular savings into your other taxable accounts. You do the whole pay yourself first approach. And I think the same approach also works very well on the way out when you withdraw money. So you automate it. Doing all of this bucket strategy and cash bucket sounds a little bit like market timing. And market timing, uh, I used to be a market timer in my real job, so I should be sympathetic to that. But I think it sounds like work. (laughs) And very often when individual investors like us with all of our behavioral biases start doing that, It's a bit of a recipe for disaster. So I just want to give you one example. So imagine you are sitting on this cash bucket and uh, you are withdrawing money from the cash bucket and you see your stocks go down in value. And you say, okay, well, great. I have this cash bucket and I can tap the cash bucket first and I can sit out until the market recovers. Well, unfortunately, the market sometimes takes much longer to recover, right? The bear market may only be one year or one and a half or two years, but for the bear market to fully recover, right? Not only end the bear market, but go up again and reach the old all-time high and reach, say, the old all-time high plus inflation adjustment. That can be an affair of not one to two years, but that can be five, seven years, 10 years or longer. I've seen some examples where it took, I think, 13 or 15 years to recover again to the old all-time high. So this whole cash bucket business sounds a little bit like market timing where I say, well, I have this cash bucket and I don't have to touch my stocks when stocks are going down. So you could even have a very counterproductive example where if you had withdrawn money from your stock portfolio right from the beginning – At least you would have still withdrawn money when stocks were high, but when stocks keep going down and down and down and down and you first withdraw from your cash bucket and and then towards the end, that's when everything you withdraw comes out of your stock bucket and that's right around the trough of the bear market, it may actually be counterproductive to have that cash bucket because remember, at some point you have to replenish that cash bucket again. And if you replenish the cash bucket uh, when stocks are down, and potentially all the way at the bottom of the bear market, then um, you you might have actually hurt yourself. So so that's why I actually prefer to probably set up some kind of an automated withdrawal plan. Just like just like the money that goes in, you can automate that. Set up your withdrawals also in an automated plan. Certainly for your for your base expenditures, right? For your for your base budget for your property taxes and insurance and and your credit card bills and then maybe for major expenses again you can't really automate that but again i'm i'm a friend of staying away from this market timing where you say well i have a cash bucket so i don't have to withdraw when stocks are down sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't and um it's it's a hit or a miss right i can show you examples where this would have worked really well and i can show you examples where this would have been counterproductive. Right. So the point that you made there was really well taken was the fact that in your absolute worst case scenario, you deplete your bucket. It's time to refill your bucket and you're still at the bottom. And now you're having to pull all of your money out of the market at these depressed prices. I guess the counterpoint would be what does regular market withdrawals look like? And then what does asset allocation look like to reflect that? Because you can't tolerate the same level of volatility that you could when you were in the asset accumulation phase. Right. So, I mean, I think a good start would be that, for example, you have your taxable account and that taxable account pays you dividends and uh, potentially interest, even though I would 
that that goes back into the asset location and allocation question. So I, I would try to stay away from holding bonds in the taxable account, but that's a different question. So certainly the income that that taxable account throws off, I mean, you you might as well consume that because that, the, for example, that income is likely going to be less than what your cash flow needs, anyways, right? So because uh, I think in their taxable account they've had they have around seven hundred, little over seven hundred thousand dollars. So you make a, a you take a two percent dividend yield on that. Uh, we're talking about maybe $14,000 a year. That's not enough to pay for the $80,000 or $90,000 in, in their budget. So the income that's thrown off, right, that is something that is taxable anyways. You might as well consume that. So just practically, uh, there's no need to do dividend reinvestment. So that's one thing you would do if that, that I would change uh, when you retire. You would switch off the dividend reinvestments in your taxable account. So, so dividend payments and the interest payments that I get, they go into my checking account. And that's used for consumption. And then you have to decide, obviously, how do you cover the rest? Right? So you might have around $14,000 a year in dividend income, uh, but my total cash flow needs are somewhere between eighty dollars and $90,000. So basically, the rest has to be taken out of the principal. So I would recommend that you start withdrawing from the highest cost tax slots. So you start withdrawing money from the assets that have a high cost basis. So that that would lower your taxable income. So it would lower your... I want to pause there just for a second. That's that's fantastic. But I think some people are probably saying, well, what does that even mean? And I know that when you log into a platform like Fidelity or Vanguard, there's multiple ways to draw out your money. You can do it just average cost. You can do it first in, first out. And the other one is you can specify ID for specific lots of money. Right. And you're right. and you're telling it, hey, when I bought a couple of years ago twenty or thirty or a hundred shares at this price, that is on this date, that is all has an ID as one lot number. Is that correct? Right. And so I urge everybody and you in fact you probably have to do that when you set up your account. So you want to have this lot identification uh, set up. And then when you withdraw, you can again specify how do you want to withdraw that? I mean, obviously, you want to withdraw only long-term capital gains, not short-term capital gains. Uh, That is probably not an issue because for most retirees, you've had these lots for 10, 15, 20 years once you retire uh, and you withdraw the money. So very likely, these are going to be long-term capital gains. But again, the most tax-efficient way is to is to start withdrawing. Uh, and, and again, there might be some examples where it's not, but as a rule of thumb, I would start with the tax slots that would generate the lowest long-term capital gains. And Carson, just for clarity, that line of delineation between short-term and long-term is actually just one year. So for people yeah. out there thinking like, oh no, long-term, it's got to be <laughs> 12 and a half years. It's just one year. So yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a point yeah. very well taken. But yeah, you don't want to sell short-term and be subject to short-term cap gains because that's at ordinary income tax rates. So you don't get the favorable taxation of the long-term. And there's only one uh, exception to the rule is if you have a tax lot that is short-term or either short-term or long-term and it's underwater, then you could sell that one and generate what it's called tax loss harvesting. So you could generate a tax loss and that could be written off against your other capital gains or even it could be compensating against your ordinary income, so which would be fantastic. So that's why a lot of people like that. But there are some limits to that. But this is not something that Becky and Stephen probably have to worry about. 
So with Becky and Steven, they're now doing this drawdown, and let's assume they're following your advice. Uh, I want to come back to mechanically what that looks like. I also wanted to ask you about the glide path. I know one piece of advice that you talk about frequently is, while maybe in the FI community, we have this debate about paying off your mortgage or not, like it, the answer, be, there's a little more clarity when it actually, when, when retirement is involved. And I'm curious your thoughts on how paying off your mortgage, that decision to pay off your mortgage would affect the glide path. So Becky and Steven have a home, a single family home, and there's no mortgage on it. So I really like not having a mortgage in retirement. And uh, even though when I was still working, I certainly enjoyed having a mortgage. I Back in the old days, I could still write off the mortgage interest and so there was some tax advantage to it and there was some advantage due to leverage. So when you have very little in assets, you want to get started with your equity portfolio as quickly as possible. We talked about this in, in episode 35, if you remember. So you almost want to have leverage early on uh, because your portfolio is so small. And in that case, a mortgage is not a bad way to get leverage. So don't pay off your mortgage if you're just starting out. So I pay off your mortgage at the rate that your your average 30-year mortgage specifies it, but don't accelerate your mortgage payoff. So you want to use the leverage and start accumulating assets as quickly as possible. But then in retirement, I think this whole equation flips. So I would argue that it's optimal in retirement to no longer have a mortgage. And uh, the way I view a mortgage is that a mortgage is almost like a short bond, right? You have shorted a bond, and it's a bond at around maybe minimum three and a quarter percent, probably all the way up to four, four and a half percent. So especially for retirees that have a that have a portfolio that is not 100 percent stocks. And I think 100 percent stock portfolio seems a little bit crazy risky to me as most retirees are going to have a portfolio that's somewhere around, say, 60 percent stocks, 40 percent bonds. So why would you have a bond portfolio? a bond share in your portfolio with uh, with a 40% share uh, and at the same time have a mortgage and the mortgage interest is higher than what you make in your bond portfolio so i i think that, that just if you, if you look at so uh, Brad you you're you're an accountant right you have an asset and a liability and the asset and the liability are both the same and your liability has a higher interest rate than your asset it's probably ideal to use that bond portfolio to pay off the mortgage, right? Unless you are a really crazy, almost risk-seeking, not risk-averse, but risk-seeking <laughs> retiree with a 100% <laughs> stock portfolio. And then you say, well, you know, that 100% stock portfolio is still not enough. I also want to have that short bond, uh, which is the mortgage in my portfolio. So that's that's one of the reasons why I think it's ideal to have no mortgage in retirement. Now, there, there might be some exceptions, say uh, you still have uh, three years or five years or seven years of mortgage uh, left over, and in order to pay it off all in one chunk, you would have some tax consequences, right? You would potentially have to liquidate a stock portfolio and pay a lot of money in, in capital gains taxes in order to get rid of the mortgage. Uh, yeah, I mean, there would be some constraints where I see that. Yeah, I mean, okay, keep the mortgage around, just uh, or or the mortgage payment is not really it's not really very large relative to your retirement budget. But again, I would prefer not to have a mortgage. So one is that 
asset allocation aspect and the other aspect is is also the sequence of return risk right as we said there's there's some time window and it can be anywhere as short as five years it can be as long as 15 years your first five to 10 maybe 15 years of your retirement is when you worry most about sequence of return risk why do you want to have this albatross around your neck which is that big mortgage payment every month exactly during the time when sequence of return risk matters so much so every different aspect I look at, I would prefer not to have a mortgage in retirement. And so, for example, we we bought a house last year and we just paid for it in cash. We don't have a mortgage. I might think about maybe getting a home equity line of credit set up that we don't really use or we would use as an absolute last minute emergency just as a cash flow, just to smooth out cash flows. But I certainly wouldn't want to have a 30-year mortgage on my house. I I don't even want to have a 30-year mortgage with 10 more years left to pay on this house. I just want to be mortgage-free. It makes for a much more relaxed and comfortable retirement, I can tell you that. Yeah. So if we were to take this, this now, I'm kind of moving away from Becky just a little bit, but taking this person that enjoyed Becky's episode because they find themselves in a more similar stage of life. And maybe their target is they have a $1 million portfolio. They've been easing their way into after they recognize after paying off their mortgage, they're going to have a 60, 40 split stocks to bonds. And they're kind of now getting ready for this first year. The market goes down by, I don't know, 30% and they're automating their numbers. Right. And I'm just Thinking through what you, you made this point earlier about the bonds not being a taxable, where are the bonds held and what does the strategy look like for them when they get to the end of that first year? So they've been drawing down from taxable and then now they're coming to the end of that first year. Market's gone down 30%. They're preparing for year two. Right. So the two aspects that, that we have to cover here. So one is uh, portfolio rebalancing. And one is uh, the asset location. So uh, first of all, so imagine you start with a 60-40 portfolio and stocks take a real bad beating. And bonds stay either flat or, as as has been uh, in the last few recessions, it's actually when stocks go down, bonds go up because interest rates are lower. So that's good for existing bondholders. So if you do your withdrawals and uh, – It's not even a particularly a glide path, but even if you want to keep a 60-40 portfolio and you want to rebalance back to that 60-40 portfolio, you would already avoid potentially taking money out of stocks because you would take it out of the out of the asset that has now appreciated relative, not just in absolute terms, but also in relative terms. So if we are in this drawdown periods for the stock market, you you would already naturally take money out of your bond portfolio to cover your expenses. So so even with the constant portfolio allocation of 60-40, you have something that looks like almost a glide path because so stocks are down, so you take money out of your bond portfolio. So it's actually not a glide path because you still rebalance back to your 60-40 at the end of the first year. So you would very likely take the majority of your cash flow needs out of bonds. You might even withdraw more than your cash flow needs from bonds and put the remainder into stocks. If, if stocks are really beaten down after one year, it's even conceivable that, that you would rebalance from bonds into stocks. So just by rebalancing your portfolio, you already have some it's almost a valuation approach, right? You you rebalance from the appreciated assets into the beaten up assets, hoping for 
the underperforming assets to turn around again, which actually has has happened in a lot of recessions, right? You had the 2008-9 recession, you had a very sharp decline and then a very sharp recovery again. So with this rebalancing approach, yeah, I mean, it's a it sounds a little bit like market timing, but even by doing something as passive as a 60-40 portfolio, there, there is an element of of, of a valuation-based tactical asset allocation almost approach. Well, it's not really tactical asset allocation because the weights, if they stay at 60-40, it has the same flavor of it, right? So you you sell the expensive assets and you buy the cheap ones, hoping for a, for a reversion back to the mean again. All right, so Big Earn, people are watching this on YouTube and they say, good Big Earn, the kind Big Earn on one side, and we need to get like a Big Earn that has a really a frown on the other side. But I think the yeah. question everybody is wondering, what's the verdict? With Becky, can she retire yet? Uh, yeah, so the verdict is, yes, they can indeed retire. I would almost argue that their $80,000 initial budget is a bit too conservative. So I would potentially take it up to maybe $85,000. Uh, $90,000 now you get uh, now you're pushing it a little bit, but there's certainly at uh, at $80,000 annual budget, $85,000 they will they will not just make it, but they will very likely have a ton of money left over even after 30 35 years. So even during the worst possible recessions that we have seen and, and bear markets that we have seen in the past, their withdrawal pattern would have survived over uh, over 35 years. And that's assuming that that you actually survive all the way up to age 98 or 100. So if you die before that, uh, there's still a, a ton of money left over that you can leave to your kids and grandkids. So yeah, absolutely. It's a so the the friendly urn, the friendly urn prevailed. I haven't even I haven't even put up the nasty we're, urn yet. We're so. gonna get it commissioned, no doubt about it. <laughs> Big urn. Thanks for joining us on the show today. This has been this has been a blast. Thank you so much. All right, to our audience, you're listening to this. Uh, you wanted more details. You want to actually see the numbers that Big Earn was leaning on. He actually wrote up a case study, which is posted on earlyretirementnow.com. That is a website that you should go to just because. But if you want to see the specific study that he set up, one, we'll have it linked in the show notes. And two, we've set up a short code for you. You can just go to choosefy.com slash Becky. I know Brad's going to correct me. That's <laughs> Becky, B-E-C-K-Y. Thank you, <laughs> you are welcome. <laughs> All right, so let's go ahead and bring MK into this conversation. MK, I know that you had to mobilize quickly in order to get that episode to Big Earn and be able to give him enough time to analyze it and bring it back for audience. And I just want to say on behalf of the community, all the people that were that episode was shared with and really wanted to know, first of all, said thank you. And then two, practically, I know I need more drawdown information on behalf of them. I want to say thank you for setting this up. You're welcome. I mean, really, it was all Big Earn. He's the expert. And Becky was so great at sharing her information so quickly. She was like, here you go. I'll type it all up. So it was great that she's been so willing to share her journey. And it really is not exactly the same, but it's similar to what so many people have been asking for in our community and saying, you know, is it too late for me? And our answer was no, it's not too late. But then understanding, okay, well, then what are the exact steps that I need to do? So having Big Earn come back in and share his expertise in our survey that we did over the summer, people said, I want more Big Earn. That was very specific. What can we do to improve? More Earn. <laughs> um, and we we're like, okay, we will get you some Big Earn. Thankfully, he was coming back on. And I really know that this content is going to help so many people as they're planning those very specific steps of, I have the big concepts. What do I do? What are the little tiny steps? So uh, you're welcome to everybody. And if you have more questions, continue to send them in and we will continue to be putting out more content like this. So if you are looking for more information from us, 
be sure to subscribe, not just to the podcast, but to our newsletter. So if you're somebody who is thinking, okay, like I listen to the podcast, but I'm in the car, I can't take notes, or I want to read more on it as well, if you process information that way. You can, of course, subscribe to our newsletter. Now, one great thing is that when you subscribe right now, you can get a free ebook that breaks down these big concepts. So go to choosefi.com slash fi dash guide choosefi.com slash fi dash guide. And that will subscribe you to our email. So you will get all this information as we're putting it out. And it will also get you this free ebook where you can see financial independence made simple. Yeah, it is a beautiful infographic series talking about the big tenets of financial independence and really excited how it came together and hope that you will access it personally and share with a friend. All right. Now we actually have a huge announcement and we recorded a segment that we are going to go ahead and play for you right now. All right, everyone. So if you've been listening to the show, you know that we put out a call to action for the community to have you tell us if you're stuck, why that is. And as we looked for patterns to see how we could better serve the community, one of the things that came through was, I feel like there's no one speaking to me where I am. I feel like one of the things I'm dealing with is well, all these things are great. I, I just don't, I don't have time for these long extended hour plus long podcasts. I barely have five minutes that I can scratch together. I would love some content that has me in mind. And, and as we looked at our community, we realized that's more than a single individual that represents a huge spectrum of our audience. And as we were looking to see, well, how, what would it look like to better serve this portion of our community? We started to engage in talks with Jillian Johnsrud, who writes over at MontanaMoneyAdventures.com. And if you remember, we've actually had her on the show at least two times. And her story is just absolutely unbelievable. And I think she brings to the conversation a level of empathy and understanding and compassion that, frankly, of all the people we've interviewed, is unparalleled. When I think about some of the content that she's produced and also some of the conversations we've had behind the scenes, it gets me very excited for what the future brings. And Brad, I know both of us, we started to have this idea simmer. What if we could do a podcast with her? What if we could help produce something and bring something out that takes these incredible characteristics that she possesses and at the same time, take that energy and apply it back to these people that re- the people that really are looking for this type of content? Yeah, no, I agree completely. And yeah, I mean, Jillian is just one of those people who you feel instantly comfortable with empathy. It just exudes out of her. She's someone you want to spend time with. She's someone you want to get to know. And I mean, we have said privately, Jillian is just a superstar. There's just something special about her. And yeah, we started talking about what would it look like to have another podcast. And Jillian's name was at the very top of that list. And we've got something real exciting brewing today. So uh, Jillian in the studio today, actually our first in, per- oh, nope, nope, our second in-person guest, I think Ed uh, oh. grabbed that mantle first, but you are just a half step behind him, our, our second in-person guest. Welcome to uh, the Choose If I podcast again, and so excited that you're joining us for this adventure. I am so excited to be hanging out in Richmond. This is awesome. From the Midwest to the East Coast. Oh, it's so much warmer here. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you said it was zero degrees in Montana the other zero day? Zero degrees. Yeah, well, you had this wonderful retreat that I believe you had decent weather for, actually pretty good weather for, but the next day after everybody left, a little, a little temperature drop. A little cold. A little cold. <laughs> Definitively, we are partnering on a podcast, which is going to be launched at the end of this year, beginning of 2020. And the title is going to be Everyday Courage. I tell you, I've had the chance to let that title just simmer and it just warms my soul. But I, but for our audience, why does this podcast exist? 
I think as women, we've gotten to this point where there's a lot of pressure to do all the things and to have all the things. But the problem is all of the things have gotten a lot bigger. My mom used to crush it on a birthday party with like a sheet cake in the 80s. That was winning. If you just invite your friends over and you just let everyone know we're going to hang out for an afternoon, you're crushing it. Like you're an awesome mom. And now it's like Pinterest unicorn rainbow sprinkle cakes. And there's so much pressure to be all the things to all the people that the reality is we're not leaning in to the things that actually really matter to us in our finances, in our careers, in our life. We're spread so thin that we're just tired and discouraged and sometimes overwhelmed. So the idea behind everyday courage is that we can just have a little bit more courage every day to set boundaries, to say no, to have hard conversations, to prioritize what matters to us, to get clarity on that, and then to go out into the world and not be everything, but to kind of be too much for the things that really are us, that are true to us, that are true to our goals and our values and our purpose for being here in the world. And so that's what I'm hoping this in a very small container, in a very short little episodes, because we don't have a ton of time. I was actually going to ask you about that. And, and one of the things when we were talking behind the scenes is you said so many podcasts, and I guess we're guilty to some varying degree, so many podcasts <laughs> are so long. Like, like as a, as a mom with so many dis- different responsibilities, I don't have time for a two hour episode. I, I simply don't. And in fact, if I give someone 15 minutes and they haven't gotten to the point yet, I'm viscerally angry at them. <laughs> <laughs> so just explain that to our audience, why that is kind of defining your goals for the cadence of the show. Yeah. Especially for me with five little kids, I'm interrupted all the time. Like I just don't have long, luxurious quiet, free blocks of time in my day. I've probably got like 10 minutes. And I love to be able to finish things. I love to check things off. I love to cross things off the list. I love to feel like I'm keeping up on things. And so when I see like, oh, I'm 20 hour long episodes behind, I just feel overwhelmed and kind of like, oh, there's one more thing I'm failing at in life. But if I like show up at school pickup and I'm 10 minutes early and I'm like, sweet, I could like finish an episode and just have that little bite-sized chunk of encouragement and positivity and inspiration. And maybe it's something heartwarming that like powers me through my day and I finish it without like small humans interrupting me. (laughs) Yeah. I know that I would super appreciate it. Yeah, Jillian, I totally agree. There's something about the stress of having all those podcasts back up on you. And, you know, for me, I listen in 1.5x. You could actually get a 15-minute episode done in 10 actual Earth minutes, which is uh, kind of cool. <laughs> Brad, so, typical, stepping in with a solution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you have a little more leeway there. But I love this concept because we look at financial independence as this umbrella for living a better life. I love when you're talking there about, you know, just getting a little bit better in just different aspects and what it means to you personally. And I think that people are looking for inspiration. They really are. And they're looking for just little tips to live genuinely a better life. So, yeah, I mean, I personally am incredibly excited to see what you put together here. Oh, MK, talk about big announcement. That one is pretty exciting. 
I am over the moon excited. When y'all first mentioned to me that this was an idea, I was just so giddy. I, you know, that little kid like, ah, I was so excited. So Brad and I and do then, that patented move a couple <laughs> times each month. <laughs> yeah, for anybody watching on YouTube, you can see the ah, excited dance. But if you're just listening, you're missing out. But I am so excited for the content that Jillian is going to bring. She always brings her A game or her A plus game. And she is just one of my favorite people in this community, present company excluded. You Thank guys you. are great. Um, but Jillian is still so have amazing. A pulse. <laughs> yes, yes. But Jillian, you know, she just brings it. She really puts out the best content and she is so genuine and wants to support people. And I think that's where I want to support her. And I, I hope other people will feel the same way that because of who she is and her genuine nature, that they will fall in love with her as much as we all have. Yeah, this is incredibly exciting. I mean, the Choose F5 family is getting larger here. That's amazing. This is the second Choose F5 podcast, and we just could not be more excited to have Jillian a part of the team here. So certainly we're going to give you, the audience, much more information over the next six to eight weeks on, on exactly when this is going to launch. But stay tuned. Everyday Courage with Jillian. Do you realize that, like, I don't know if we mentioned this, but 2020 is a new decade? Like a new yeah. decade. That is wild. And, you know, it's funny when you think about, like, the 1900s, you think the 20s, the 30s, the 50s. I mean, we're coming up on that in the 2000s. This is the 20s of the 2000s. It's it's kind of trippy when you actually think about it like that. Living in the future, my friends. Yeah, Living man. in the future. All right, MK, bringing in voices and feedback from the community. What do you got for us? Well, today we have ZB who wanted to shout it from the rooftops. ZB said that today we paid off our mortgage paid 116000 in 22 months while also maxing out their 401k. The feeling is unbelievable. We are truly debt-free. Looking forward to next year and all the goals we will smash. We are 34 and 32. Next year, we will contribute to max out the 401k while also maxing out IRAs, HSA, and adding any additional money to our brokerage account. So ZB, we are here to shout it with you. Congratulations. That is awesome. All right. Well, before we close, just want to spend just a minute and get an update on our local groups. Well, we have a new local group to welcome, Vancouver, Washington. Welcome to the Choose a Five family. We're excited to have you here. And we have some events coming up. So Choose a Five Nebraska is getting together on the 12th of November to do unconventional life hacks. So it'll be exciting to see what comes out of that meetup, all the different life hacks that people can do. Our Choose a Five Frankfurt group is having a meetup in Germany on November 13th. So for everybody listening internationally who's in the area of Frankfurt, Germany, can't wait to see you there. And on November 17th, Choose a Five Stanford is having a Friendsgiving potluck, continuing with our trend of potlucks and everybody getting together for delicious food. That is awesome. And if, and if you're listening to this and you want to get involved in your local group, to do that, you can just go to chooseify.com slash local. With well over 300 local groups all around the world, you will find a local group in your area. Find a community and get engaged today. Unfortunately, that is going to bring this episode to a close. But as you know, we like to finish every episode by doing a drawing for a copy of a book that we have found useful. And we're doing our book right now, Chooseify, Your Blueprint to Financial Independence. But I thought also we might throw a little curveball out here. I am seeing a new book on the backsplash of this screen in front of me. MK, I believe you just released a new book. And I'm thinking if you want to, if, if someone in the audience, you know, they've read all the five, the personal finance books, but they want to get a five fiction book. If they want to get a fiction book by a five author, then maybe uh, we could we could throw in the infinite infinite. And MK, why don't you just take a second and tell us about your new book release? Yes. Well, the infinite infinite is sci-fi as in science fiction. Ah, I see what so you did it, there. <laughs> 
So it is a sci-fi adventure. So Nina wakes up in a parallel universe and at first things seem better, better house, better job. But then she realizes that she is going to be stuck in this parallel universe, potentially with the person who kidnapped her there if she doesn't find a way home in 24 hours. And she is not a physicist. So she has to enlist some help of friends uh, to be able to help her travel across the multiverse. And she encounters different realities where different histories happen. So if you have liked The Man on the High Castle or Timeless or Michael Crichton, Jurassic Park, uh, adventure stories like that, then you will love The Infinite Infinite. It's a fun adventure and mystery waiting for anybody who wants to travel the multiverse. That is really cool. Okay, where would people find the book if they wanted to purchase it? Anywhere great books are sold. So Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Nook, Apple, all the places. So obviously they can search for Infinite Infinite, but can they search your name? Is it MK Williams, Mary Kay Williams? What are we looking at? (laughs) It's MK Williams. So MK Williams, The Infinite Infinite. And from there, you can also navigate to my Fi fiction book, which Jonathan alluded to, Enemies of Peace, if you are truly just wanting to stay with Fi reading. (laughs) You know, I I appreciate that. All right. Well, if you want to enter the drawing to win a copy as well, you can go to uh, chooseify.com slash iTunes, follow the instructions, and leave us a short written review. Then send us an email to feedback at chooseify.com, letting us know that you left a review and what screen name you left it under. We give away one book for every five written reviews that we get, and we announce the winner on the Friday Roundup. And MK, how many winners do we have today? Today, we have one winner, and that is Joe. So Joe took to heart our idea of efficiency of words and time, and he says, a great resource, always an interesting listen with a variety of guests covering useful topics. Thanks, Joe. All right, my friends, the fire is spreading. We'll see you next time as we continue to go down the road less traveled. You've been listening to Choose FI Radio Podcast where we help middle-class America build wealth one life hack at a time.